eating my life. That just builds more resentment, all based on self-centered fear. And I'm dragging around more baggage. It's like a truckload of stuff I'm dragging around with me. And that's what I get to you meet. That's who you meet. Every time I show up to you, I have all my resentment. I have all my fear driving the conversation. So you don't get to meet me. You meet whoever fear says I need to be for the day. You know what I'm saying? And character defect is how I do business. And it's all directed by the predator, the thinking mind, the self-centered outcome worshiping guy that I am. I need you to see me this way. I need to feel this way while it's all going on. And if, and if I don't feel this way, you must be lacking somewhere. And there's all these different ways of dealing in relationships. We know how it is. Because I, I used to see uh, words like self-seeking. Well, what's that mean? Well, it's the actions I take to get this to go my way. Or maybe it's a silent scorn treatment. You know, I'll be really mean to you to get you to do what I want. I'll be kind to you to get you to do what I want. We're best friends. And now we'll see if you're going to do what I want now. And then perhaps you don't do what I want in the very end. Is the relationship deal is... What's wrong, Scott? Oh, nothing. Nothing, you... And if you really loved me, you'd know what was wrong. You know. God forbid I asked you a question or we had a discussion on some uncomfortable things in relationships, which is that's what they are. See, I, had, I always thought, well, if this relationship was meant to be, it would be easy and since it's not, you're obviously not the one for me, and maybe she is, or maybe she is over there. All right? So I end up um, rather resentful, and I'm four and a half years sober, and my life's driven by fear. I, I, I couldn't, you know, it talks about not being able to make a living. We couldn't make a living. I tried my dandest to get with contractors that did the restoration work that I that I wanted to do and that I'm really good at. And, man, I, I couldn't get a job with them if I paid them. You know, I'd work a month, the job would come to a close, and everybody get laid off except for, like, two guys that I just couldn't see how they kept a job. But here, here they are, regulars with this. And it went on like that for years with the, you know, the local trade union. <clears throat> I'm not happy with my work. I'm certainly not happy with my marriage. Um, uh, my relationships with people like you, not so great. You know, those big book thumpers and, and all this nonsense that I'm, I'm, I'm listening to in meetings. And then I hear that talk. Then I hear that talk from a man who had an answer. And uh, I sought him out. He didn't know it. <laughs> But I, there was a Fellowship of the Spirit in New York going on, up in Staten Island. And uh, I said, I'm going to go find this guy. And uh, if I got to throw a sack over his head and put him in the trunk of my car, man, he's going to be my sponsor. He's coming with me. And, uh, and then I had I made up some things in my mind about what it was going to be like, you know, to turn my life and will over to God. It was going to be like, I'll do a little bit of work, a little bit, and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be Man, and, and, and God's just going to shower me with ease and comfort. The kind of ease and comfort that came along with the drinks I was taking years before. I was going to get blissed out on spirituality. 
That's what I thought was going to happen to me. Um, that did not happen to me. But I did go to this conference, and who I met were these two guys from out west. It was Gary, Gary B., and Mickey M., one from Denver, from Indianapolis, and my friend Peter. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't there till like, Sunday morning, I think. That was a Sunday morning talk. And after the thing, you know, during the weekend, I'm sitting there and, like, Everything's firing, all cylinders on every step. And I'm building a rapport with this man from Denver uh, at lunch and dinner and stuff like that. We're talking. We're really hitting it off. And we're connecting. God was starting to connect the dots for me. And by the end of this conference, now I'm like, well, who do I, who do I ask? I came here desperate. You know, there was a famous dope fiend writer, William S. Burroughs. Wrote a, he wrote a quote, and it, it starts off with, Desperation is the raw material for, dr- for drastic change. Only those who are willing to let go of everything they ever believed in could hope to escape. And what I'm looking to, hope, looking to escape is self. So what am I willing to let go of? Well, all of a sudden, I'm not willing to let go of very much. Because my mind got in there and said, well, how bad is it, Scott? Because now it was time to pony up and ask another man to take me through this work. To enter into this decision that I'd heard about. To start writing down some inventory. To start getting down to causes and conditions in my life. Really, it was time to let go of the wheel. And the ego didn't want to do that. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew one thing was that what this book is asking me to do and the way to gain access to this power is to let go of the wheel. And I didn't know how, now I'm not so sure about these guys. I don't know. And then God got right in there because people were leaving. People were going to their cars. The cha-cha line was there. And, you know, Pete was going to leave any, you know, as soon as he, you know, was the last thank you, he was going to go. The rest of the guys were packing their bags. The room's emptying out, and my mind gets in there and starts telling me things like, how bad is it? You got plenty of dough in the bank. You got the house and the wife thing. You'll figure that out, and, you know, all that nonsense. And God came in there, and, and I knew I needed to do something. And I would, before I realized that I was down on my ease, knees, and I'm asking God to help me. God, please help me, because I don't know what to do, and I need to do something. Because I'm going to die. I'm going to die at my own hand. I'm going to die sober. Live free or die. That was it for me. And I knew it. And I asked God to help me. And when I opened my eyes, that guy from Denver was standing there looking down at me. And it was like Star Trek beamed him in. He wasn't there a minute ago. And he's looking down at me with this kind, this kindness and this warmth and this inviting spirit that those of you that know him, you know that that's just the way this man is. And he looked down at me and he said, what's up, brother? And that kind, inviting, warm spirit lifted me right off of my knees and I just made my approach. Still with my, you know, hey, uh, well, (laughs) you know. I, um, you know, I was wondering if maybe you could, you know, find some time to, to... Please help me, you know. And, uh, and he says, uh, well, tell me how you see yourself. And I'm like, okay. Well, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy. I care about others, and, and I want to be helpful. And he stops. He says, hold on a second, brother. He goes, I've been watching you all weekend. I didn't know this, but he was watching me. And he says, and from where I was sitting, you look like a clenched fist. And he was right. Because I would take a look 
at my experience and how I showed up to life. I mean, right from the jump. From my house, I'd go two blocks to the coffee shop. And when I got there in the morning, whoever it was behind the counter would say, man, you look really mean. Are you okay? It's not that bad. And I'd be like, what? I look mean. Like, what do you, t- I, you know, I'm thinking I go to AA, man. What are you kidding? Give me my coffee. That was it. I would snap so quickly at people that I, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even have a shot at stopping it, you know. Chase people down the highway, I-95, like I'd get off at exits I wasn't even getting off at to catch you at the red light. And if it was, I'd jump out, man, I'd be up there ripping the mirror off your car. It's amazing no one killed me. You know, but that's the kind of guy I was, and I would show up at AA meetings with my, put my AA game face on, and I'm living the dream. And I would say silly, stupid things like, well, as long as I'm, you know, I, I want to stay sober more than I want to get loaded, I'm cool. Or I choose not to drink under any and all conditions, and all that stuff. You know, I would seek safety and, and, and chance, you know, the little things we do or throw out a slogan or a we think not, things like that. And in the meanwhile, my whole life, I'm terrified. I'm dying on the inside. I'm dying of untreated alcoholism. I haven't done any work. I haven't made any decisions. I haven't acted on them. No decisions that were going to save my life. And then I find out, well, what does it mean to, 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 to turn your life and will over to care of God? And I would hear a lot of things, like, and I still do today, like, well, I, you know, I made a decision to do God's will. And that's not what step three is asking us to do at all. It's asking me to put my life and my will, my life, my thoughts, my actions, and my thoughts into the care of God. I'm going to let God care for me. To be reborn again, I mean, I've watched my son being born, and it didn't look too comfortable. So there's chance. There's a chance I'm going to get squeezed a little bit. There's a chance I'm going to have to. I'm going to be shivering and shaking a little bit sometimes because I have no experience with this power called God. I don't know what it's going to look like. I have no idea. And it's easy to sit here and take this prayer and, and do it very casually and just say, "Well, I'm going. To, I'm willing to do whatever it is God has come down the line for me." And it's like, really. Well, put it this way. What if God, if, if we, any one of us had the chance to say, okay, God, if you had a sit down with God and you had the chance to ask God, what is his will for you? And we're all people here to say we would do what God, whatever it is God has asked for us because we're so, we're so enthusiastic and pumped up with this power. You know, we get that enthusiasm going. Well, what if God said, okay, Scott, or, okay, Jimmy, I'll be God. I love playing God. And you're Jimmy. Okay, Jimmy, what I want you to do is get a pickup truck and fill it with two-by-fours and plywood and a hammer and nails. And I want you to take that truck and I want you to drive it up into the Rocky Mountains to the beginning of a trailhead that I have picked out. And I want you to build a shack. And I want you to take this pile of seeds and grow some vegetables, and that's how you're going to live. And I want you to just be there to be a friendly face for the travelers that are going to come by, hikers and stuff. And that's your purpose in life. And all of a sudden, my ideas about what God's will for me, are, I'm not so keen on. You know, Would I still be willing to do that? 
if I had to sit down with God and that's what he said. All right? That is not a casual decision to turn my life and will over to the care of God. If you put it in those terms, there's nothing casual about it. You know? My sponsor said, Scott, you better mean it. You better mean it because you don't know what's coming down the road. I, I, God has spoken to me in the brick walls that we've been talking about, left, right, and center. I found out all these things that were taking on greater importance in my life, the outcomes of things, financial things, and I've been running into brick walls, and I can't get over it, and I can't get around it, and I can't dig under it, and I just hit my knees and say, okay, I surrender to you again. And it's like, I remember asking my sponsor, when am I going to break into the clear here? And he laughed. And he said, Scott, I'm not laughing at you, man. I'm laughing with you. And the answer to that question is, you'll break into the clear when they pull the grass over your face. But in the meantime, you're going to have to respond to selfishness in all its common manifestations. Or, to, or it's going to run your life. You know, fear is described as the evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. One thread of fear in the fabric of my life disintegrates. And that's how I was driven. Driven by a hundred forms of fear. Think about it. Can you right now put down ten forms of fear on a piece of paper? Like right now, boom. Write down ten forms of fear. Right? I'm driven by a hundred. A hundred. Fear robs me of any honest decisions that I could have made, should have made, and it robs you of ever having an honest interaction with me. Because I'm doing what fear tells me to do. I don't get a vote. Now, through inventory, I thought at one point, well, it looks like fear drives the whole engine, but it's not. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problems. Selfishness creates the fear because I'm relying on self to overcome all the nonsense and made-up stuff in my mind that I worried about because I have no faith in God. I don't really believe there is a God that's going to protect me, maybe Pete, Maybe Jimmy, maybe B, but I don't believe God's going to work for me. Pete just got done saying that when I'm experiencing fear, that there's current agnosticism going on in my life. And who wants to go to their AA meeting where you're the guy or you're the gal and say something like, I'm experiencing agnosticism because we're so afraid we're going to lose our stripes? You know? We've become somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. How dare I use something as sacred as Alcoholics Anonymous to become somebody? I'm going to make somebody out of myself in Alcoholics Anonymous. How dare I? But we do it. We see it all the time. Then I get resentful about that and I get to go write some inventory. <laughs> but... There are a lot of great words that describe this fourth step. 
this personal inventory that mo- many of us have never tried, right? The first word is next. That means right now. You know, you'll hear that. Well, wait a while. Don't do a fourth step for a year. I heard that a lot. I wasn't doing a fourth step anyway, so a year's good. That'll keep you off my back long enough for you to focus on somebody else, because I ain't never doing a fourth step, bro. Ain't happening. I just want to go do a 13th step over there. And I'm okay. Get some dough in my pocket, maybe go to the gym, shoot some steroids. I know that trip, right? Go to work for some of the neighborhood guys again. Get my street credit back. But I'm not doing a fourth step. So immediately after this prayer, immediately after this prayer, the word next. Next means right now. So when's a good time to do the fourth step? The moment I get off my knees in my third step prayer, which is the affirmation of my decision to turn my life and will over to the care of God, my thoughts and my actions. So next, meaning right now, Scott launched. Okay, how does that look? Have I launched out into a course of vigorous action? I know what vigorous is like. It's like when I go to work and I'm, say I got to plaster this ceiling. I got to get from here to there. And I want to do it by the end of the day. And I got to work vigorously. I'm, you know, I'm mixing the lime and plaster up and I'm putting it on, man. I'm trowing it down and I'm moving, man. I'm moving. And the material dictates the vigor. The material dictates my pace. If I don't get that on the ceiling and get it troweled down and polished in time, it's going to be ruined. Right? My desperation is the material that I'm working with here. How desperate am I to start to get free of these things that are making my life impossible? Or do I believe I'm doing okay? Am I in the usually don't think so part of alcoholism? I know what it's like to be vigorous. I know what it was. I know what it is that moves me. So it's a course of vigorous action. Well, what's the vigorous action look like? Well, the first step of this vigorous action. So it's telling me vigorous action is a lot bigger than this fourth step. This fourth step is really just the first step in the rest of my life, living by principle. Discipline. The only problem with living a disciplined life is that it requires discipline. And I'm not, you know. So this was all new to me. This was all new to me, and my mind already had ideas attached to what I was hearing in regards to discipline, what it was going to look like, what, it, what the fruits of the discipline would be like. And, and then I get right to write inventory on that stuff later. So... The first step of the housekeeping, which many of us never attempted, though our decision, another great word, was vital. It's life-giving. This stuff that we don't want to do, we don't want to look at, it gives us life. It gives us life as much as the breath I just took, the beats my heart just took, that I have no control over. They just happen. All I got to do is show up to the work. It gives me life. 
And another vital and crucial. It's, it's crucial. I must do these things. I'm not a must guy. I don't like the word must. And here my book is loaded with must. Must this, must that. Must. Do you get what I'm saying? This is not stuff I showed up to do. I am an almost none of us liked person. That's how I am. I mean, who isn't? Bill was great the way he wrote things in there. When it comes to us, and, and there's a perhaps, there's an almost none of us liked, because we're always, we're loophole people. You know, we want to, it's like, I thought when I showed up to this work that I was going to take my spot, my seat at the banquet table of life, right? Not even the banquet table of life, the dessert table. I was going to take my spot at the dessert table of life and I was going to eat my way through all the cakes and pies and everywhere to be a Brussels sprout, right? And I might eat that. And then I, but then, you know, there's always one alcoholic in the room who likes Brussels sprouts, right? There's always one wacko. But like, there's that loophole. See, Mary Beth. But when it comes to God, there's no loopholes in here. There's a lot of must. There's a lot of absolute. There's a lot of constantly, is or isn't, what was my choice to be? So I can't say, well, I choose God, and then I'm going to get here and I'm going to stop. Because I'm afraid of what might be that contempt prior to investigation. I had never written a fourth step a day in my life. But we opened up this book, and my sponsor, that man agreed to sponsor me, and I've been working with him ever since. That was a number of years ago. And we do it over the phone. He lives 2,000 miles away from me in Denver, Colorado. You know, but God connects the dot. dot God, God knows no distance. The same laws that apply here on earth apply millions of light years away in far off distant galaxies. Why should the distance of my phone conversation have anything to do with the quality or the value in my Sponsorship, absolutely none. But how many times have I talked to guys and say, like, well, you know, we're going to do this over the phone. Oh, well, oh, gee, I don't know about that, right? I don't know how, oh, man, I can't do that. Or after I'm done giving a talk, someone will come up and say, hey, do you have anybody in your, they can, and I'll say, you know, well, I got a person out in Idaho. And they'll be like, oh, well, no. You know, we want that we want that sit down, huggy, feel good thing going on. You know, and it's like if you're on the phone, I can't do that. Well, you know, taking a look at all the selfishness and the manifestations of that selfishness in my life, it doesn't feel good. You know, the step, the fourth step, is not a feel good operation. It's not. Now, it's not a bash me over the head and put, send myself to hell operation either. Although I'm pretty good at that stuff, I'm pretty good at that. But that's not what we're doing here. And it's not a list of all my down dirties. You know, I've heard that said too. Well, what I had to do was make a list of all the mean, rotten, nasty stuff I did. And Well, that's more like an eighth step list. So the fourth step is just what it says. It's a list of the common manifestations of selfishness. It's a resentment, it's a fear, and it's a sex inventory that... Many of us had never attempted. Many. None. Whoever attempted that? <laughs> Though our decision was vital and crucial, it could have little permanent effects. 
unless at once, right now, followed up by a strenuous effort, strenuous. How strenuous are my efforts to face, be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us, blocking me from God. Our liquor was but a symptom. So I don't have a drinking problem. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I had a real drinking problem. And when I drank, I did. And when I tried to stay stopped, I couldn't. Why? Because my life, I'm consumed by self and I'm driven by fear. Eventually, I will pick up a drink. I don't have to think about drinking anymore. It doesn't come to my mind. I'm not calling you if it does. But God is very kind. The thoughts of a drink have been removed from me. And it's because of this process which starts here with this, for, this program of action. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what action looked like. This is just scratching the surface on some of the stuff I'm, I'm up against, which is me. I run into me all the time. The brick walls that God drops in front of me are built by me. Always. It's not you. Even when it is you, it's not you. There's a line in here that says, Though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. And I'm bouncing around a little bit. But I don't want to forget this. They, like ourselves, were sick too. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful? You know, that's a real easy way to just broad brush that if you disturb me, you're sick. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Is that, well, you know, I, I'm resentful of you because you're sick. And I don't get to get to, I don't get to see any of the truth in, in, about myself. All right, so now that I got that out of the way, I just, some things I just want to get in, you know? All right, so we did exactly the same. We, okay, here we go. Ba, 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 ba. Therefore, we started on a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. And if I'm constantly writing inventory, I'm never open for business. I never get free. I never get to go out and actually experience the fruits of what I'm doing here. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. My soul is the stock and trade and the things that are swimming around in it because I'm a collector. I collect and I stuff it down and I think I have a hole in my soul and I don't. It's everything I've been walking with that makes me feel so empty. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods and to get rid of them promptly, promptly and without regret. That's where I struggled for the longest time when I would lean on old ways of doing things. Character defect is how I do business. It's how I've done business my whole life. Some of us more than others. But I would get rid of something promptly and without regret. And then two months later, somebody gives me a hard time and I want to I come at them. I want to rely on the, the neighborhood thing and uh, never works out for me. If the owner's success, the business is to be successful, he or she cannot fool him or herself about values. What is it in me that lacks value in the way I think? We do not lack value. It's the thinking mind that lacks value. And we think we are our thoughts. I am not my thoughts. My thoughts at times lack value. What is it about them that lacks value? 
Resentment lives in thought. All action is born in thought. So what is it about my thoughts that lacks value? Let me get really clear on that. And it's not just like, oh, the sunglasses. It's what's beneath it. What's, I can inventory behavior all day long. And all I do is document bad behavior. It's like sitting on a pile of dung. Ten feet high, and I'm inventorying the flies that are sw- flying around my head. And I'm sitting on this thing. This stuff is down in here. I can't see it. It's the roots. Down to root causes. Where are the roots on a tree? I can't see them. I might see the tops of them, but I can't see how deep those roots go, but God can. Where I've had to go with my sponsor are places I don't want to go. And if I don't have a sponsor that's willing to take me there, get one who will, because I'm not going. I'm not going to go there. I'll just inventory, oh, Joe, he, he made me mad. Why? Because I don't like the way he acts. Perhaps he's spiritually sick. Oh, great inventory, Scott. Now go off with your alcoholic self and keep it up. You know what I mean? And I show up to my meeting and I'm living the dream until Jimmy does something I don't like. And now I'm pissed off again. And boy, man, forget about it. And then I go home and I take it out on my girlfriend. Because I don't like the way she's acting. I selfishly want her to act different. And that's as far as my inventory goes. It's nonsense. I got that out. Yeah, right? (laughs) Have a volume. (laughs) Okay, we did exactly the same things with our lives. We took stock honestly. Now, here's something I did not do. My first inventory is, is on fire as I was with the notion of getting free and bursting out into the you know, this, the acid trip of bliss that I thought spirituality was going to be, I left all kinds of stuff out of my inventory. But I did the best I could. I caught up to it later, but it had done a tremendous amount of damage by the time I did that. You know, which I can't say was a mistake. There are no mistakes in God's world. There are, If there are no mistakes in God's world... Everything that happens, he has a hand in it. He is it. So these Picasso, Michelangelo fourth steps that we're trying to write here is all an ego trip. And I can learn all about precision and I got a black belt in process and I'll beat you over the head with how you should be writing it. I suggest that all we do is we do what... You know, the black letters say on the white page in the blue book. And we pray beforehand, and that's as good as it gets. It don't get no better than that. If I ask God, which is what I do before I write inventory, I write a prayer across the page. God, help me to be honest. Help me to see the truth. Thank you. Now my fourth step is perfect. Because I ask God to help me. Why would God not help me? My first fourth step, as far as I see, is like, well, it was really lacking in this. and Maybe not. Maybe not. All the work I've done up to this point has brought me to this point. And I'm telling you, I'm living the greatest days of my life. The greatest days of my life are right here, right now. So, how many mistakes have, I, have any of us really made? 
I don't have to understand all this stuff. And ha well, how's writing this inventory going to take me to this place of freedom of self? Well, I'm going to get free of this self, and then some more is going to show up. And I'm going to have to make my attempts and my effort to be rid of those things in my life that are blocking me from God at that current moment. I don't know what it's going to look like any more than I know what my life's going to unfold and look like. But I have faith. I know I'm going to be safe and protected. I know I'm going to be cared for when, cared for when I get there, just as I'm cared for now. With all the disappointment, with all the surprise, with all the change in my life that I cannot stop the flow of, we can't stop the flow of change. I thought I was going to put the screws to God with this work and get him to work for me. It says we had a new employer. I thought, I didn't, I, consciously, who would think of something so ridiculous? But when I look back on it in the rearview mirror, I see God in the rearview mirror all the time. How many times have I presented God with a solution to my problems? Over and over again, I didn't know I was doing it, though I usually don't think so. Right? And then I take a look at, man, I'm really, I'm, I'm thinking I made a decision here, and, and now God's going to work for me. And I'm going to do all this work, and this is how it's going to play out. Why? Because there's an immaturity that comes along with being alcoholic, and it's just the way it is. It's a fundamental trip. It doesn't even mean I screwed up. It means you're right on track, kid. Now you're going to find out what God's really like. Here's a brick wall. And that's okay, too. I've had a lot of disappointment. I've been disappointed with God. I've been disappointed with my sponsor. I've been disappointed with my son. I've been disappointed with myself big time. And it's all okay. It's all okay. Because what it comes down to is, I want to run the show. I even want to decide how I want God to show up in my life. Now, what's that say about my third step decision? I, will, I know how I want God to show up in my life. Well, I thought I turned my life and will over to the care of God. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. I got to be reminded of that. And inventory is a great way to remind myself of that. So it says here, resentment. Well, wait, first, before that, being convinced. Am I convinced that self manifested in various ways? Now, there's a lot of ways self manifests itself. This is what we've been given. Being that self manifests in various ways, what it defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Excuse me. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem, right, that reference to the tree again, to the root and branch, their stems. From its stem, all forms of spiritual disease. Just like, you know, later on I might talk about the way certain amends affect other amends. Just like this selfishness that we walk with, it stems. We just don't know exactly where these stems are headed or where they've been until we get down to some causes and conditions with a sponsor. God bless the guys who, did, who got this book mailed to them in the beginning. It's a, how did this fellowship, how did this program stay alive and this fellowship grow up? How did it ever happen? How could it have ever happened? By chance? Some guy gets a book mailed to him 
Well, I say guy because back then, you know, we all know women weren't an alcoholic back then. <laughs> but some guy gets a book mailed to him and just does what the black words on the white page in the blue book says, when and how it says. And now this fellowship grows up around us. And then I'm going to take a look at something. Well, I don't know about that, you know. So resentment is the number one offender. From it stems all sort forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally. I'm no longer thinking about a drink. And physically, I'm not putting it in me because my mind hasn't taken me there. So there is no more phenomenon of craving. I have recovered from drinking. Now, the word recovered, when I first heard that, I thought cured. I thought, I'll do a fourth step, and then I'll never have to experience <laughs> inventory again, you know, because I'm recovered now. I don't experience these things. And I actually had a sponsee of mine call me and say, hey, man, I got a problem. You know, we're doing inventory, right? Because he does what the book is asking of him and what his life depends upon. And he's writing inventory on a guy at a meeting who, like, said, hey, I really can't relate to what you're talking about because now I'm recovered. I don't experience that stuff anymore. And it's like, okay, brother, talk about whistling in the dark. Um, maybe you don't belong here. I don't know. You know, I know I belong here. And I there's all sorts of ways of whistling in the dark. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people institutions and principles with whom we were angry. I wasn't sure what they meant by all that. Institutions, like the church is an institution. The government is an institution. Jimmy's a person. Right? And principles. Perhaps like general principles. Love thy neighbor. Well, my neighbor sells crack. I don't want to love him. You know, maybe i got to find out what love looks like in, in all this. There's all sorts, you know. So, we set them on paper. We asked ourselves why we were angry. So what I do is, well, it's, I'll, go, I'll run through this first. In most cases, we found it was our self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relationships, including sex, was hurt, threatened, so we were burned up. We were sore. I was pissed off. You know what I mean? On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, security, ambition, personal relations, or sex relations, which had been interfered with? What I'd do is, I wish I had a chalkboard. I'd rip, you know, go through some mechanics real quick. But what I do is, on the piece of paper, I draw a line down the margin right there. I write a name, Joe. Next line, the cause, the cause of the resentment. Um, Joe, he kicked me in the crotch. Affects my ambitions, right? What's ambitions? Well, my ambition is what I want. You know, I want us to get along. I want us to get, you know, be friends. I don't want them to kick me, you know, whatever. And then I got personal relationships. How I think this relationship should look. How's that affect it? Well, I think we should walk shoulder to shoulder. I think we should be friends, whether, you know, neighbors, whatever, whoever Joe is, coworkers. How's that interfered with? Emotional security. How's my emotional security? What I need to be okay. I need Joe to be my friend to be okay. I need people to worship me basically to be okay. 
you have to be in a position where you wouldn't ever dream of stepping on my toes. Right? Worship. Sex relations. I don't know. Maybe if, uh, you know, Joe just kicked me in the crotch, now I don't look so tough in front of my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, maybe that will affect my sex relations. How's that affect my pocket? Well, Joe just whooped my rear end. Man, maybe I, maybe I got some... Maybe I got a couple stitches I got to go get, you know? How do these things affect me? And I, I write all that down. Um, my pride. How I think others should see me. How's that affected? I get to find out how prideful I am. Oh, well, man, I need you to see me as this guy you don't dare mess with. You've got to show the utmost respect to. And then I take a look at my fourth column and I find out I'm not so respectful. I haven't been so respectful to Joe. Maybe I talk badly about Joe because I don't like the way he lives. I don't like what I see. Maybe I just straight up took something from Joe. I get to see, first of all, where have I been selfish? Where had I been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Not just a checklist. Was I selfish? Yeah. Was I dishonest? Yeah. Was I self-seeking? We, turn, we talked about self-seeking before. What's that look like in my life? Well, I'll be real nice to you to get you to do what I want. I'll be mean to you to get you to do what I want. I'll give you the silent scorn treatment, and you should just figure it out. And if you cared about me, you would know what I wanted. I'll gossip about you. You believe, Joe? You believe he said that in that meeting the other night? He's head for trouble. You know. I don't know what he's doing in AA, but, you know. And, and where was I frightened? Is there fear? Was there fear driving me? that started with this selfishness that led to the dishonesty, that led to the self-seeking. And here I am, driven by fear, once again, though I usually don't think so, and I get to put this all down on paper, and I get to look at it, and I get to see the lack of value in it, and I get to realize where it came from was right in here. All action is born in thought. It all comes out of my mind, and it's created by my desire to run the show, to live life based on self, though I usually don't think so. And I can't balance my own books. I hear that. I, you know, I've been sponsoring myself. I think, man, I don't, I don't think I would survive it. And God forbid I would to take a drink. If I were to take a drink, I'd be a goner. When I tell you the thought of a drink hasn't so much as crept into my mind since I got here, I'm not kidding. And thank and God's very kind. He knows, apparently, because I'm not calling you. I'm not calling you. I can't think to drink through. The thought of a drink comes into my mind. I don't get a vote. I go drink. Step one is that I will drink. And I don't get a vote. And that's why we do this. So there's my resentment inventory. And I write this stuff down. You know... I've tried different ways, going straight across, just doing the first column, just doing the second, then doing the third. And what I do is I just I write it across. I write the whole thing out. Joe, kick me in the crotch, affects this. Here's where I'm at, you know, blah, 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 blah. I just go right across the page with it. And I do that on every resentment. And here's the thing. I want to tell my first inventory with my sponsor, I mean, I... I had like 10 names. Now, here's a guy I was, 
I got sober when I was 35, so I'm, I'm almost 40 years old. And uh, <laughs> I'd never written an inventory in my life. Like, I was the angriest guy you could have ever met. I mean, really, out there, man. And uh, <laughs> and I got ten names down. Like I said, on, it says we did so, honestly. <laughs> I was as honest as I could be. That was as honest as I could get. And Mickey knew I was lying. And he says, look, we're just going to do what we're going to take what you got and we're going to run with it. Because believe me, if you work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to come across this stuff again. You're going to catch it down the road. And hey, it would be great if, uh, you know, it didn't affect your life and the lives of others in a negative way. This stuff you'll catch up later. Well, it, it probably will. But I, like I said, I can't say that that's a mistake because there's no mistakes in God's world. If I didn't learn the hard way, there'd be that, you know, I learned everything the hard way. That's just how it's been for me. Perhaps it'll be that way for you. See, that word perhaps is in here. I love that word. My sponsor hates it. He wishes they would take that out because I, I've used that word. So, again, it says here, though, we did not like their symptoms. Sometimes, you know, I talked about how it's real easy to use that as a broad brush. That anybody that disturbs me, it's because they're spiritually sick, right? That's self-run riot in the work. Because I can't just say, well, you pissed me off, you irritated me, I'm resentful at you because you're spiritually sick. That, that situation was meant for very specific moments. I run through the inventory, and here's another thing. It doesn't ask me what my part was. The fourth column asks me what my fault was. So perhaps I'm having a hard time finding my fault. And there are those situations where someone actually did me wrong and I had no part in it and I didn't set the ball rolling. They just harmed me. Well, perhaps I'm just selfishly not willing to forgive them. I also was ha had some things happen to me as a boy that I had no part in and they changed me for the rest of my life. Changed me forever. I, it was unsolicited. I was six years old. It happened. My mind and my ego wants to say it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And I go back to, well, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And I can't change. And I'm not that person anymore. I don't live there anymore. I'm, I was six. Now I'm 47. And I've been, I walked with that stuff for decades, and I hated, and I resented. And I allowed that to have power over me. As a grown man, you ain't touching me today unless I want you to. Believe it. And here I am, a grown man, carrying around the hate and resentment and brokenness of that six-year-old boy. And I was not willing to forgive. And there I was selfish. And it was dishonest because it was going to free me. I was going to get free. We, You know, the word freedom and... And getting free and in the process and all that stuff that I'm so enthusiastic about. But I, when it comes down to really doing what it takes to get free, I wasn't willing to do it. I wasn't willing to forgive this person. I wouldn't even know what he looked like if he showed up here tonight, today. 
I wouldn't know. But I want to walk with that. I love Caroline Mace, and she gives a talk. It's called Why People Don't Heal. And one of the biggest reasons why we don't heal is that we get addicted to our woundedness. We get addicted to being broken. And what do we do? We get to continue to suffer. You know, it's like, I'm the broken, it's like a country, it's country cowboy song. Like, I'm so broken. And, you know, we, we get addicted to that stuff. I remember being with a woman, she had a, a CD, and I'm sure guys do it too. It's, it was called Sad Songs. And it's like she'd put the CD in and then just sit and cry listening to it. And it's like the bitter morass of self-pity. Come on. But that's us. You know, we're self runs the show again. It doesn't feel that way at the time. It feels really justified. I need a good cry. You know what I'm saying? We got the opportunity to heal here. And then I get the opportunity to pass that on to you. I had a talk last night out in the parking lot with a guy. We're talking about the same stuff. Peter had brought it up. He had the courage to do that. Had the courage to go there at some point with his sponsor the way I had to go there with my sponsor. In this inventory process, maybe it's not the first time I went through the steps. I didn't get clear on that stuff. I didn't get honest about that sort of thing. I mean, I was a desperate individual, but I was going to trust this man as much as I was capable of trusting him. I didn't trust him enough to open up about being molested as a child or any, any of the places that took me throughout my adult life. I, you know, really colorful things can happen. And I wasn't going to talk to another man about that stuff, not the first go around. But I had to because it was eating my lunch. I didn't show up here to do these things. I had to. Because I said I was willing to go to any lengths. I lied. You know? You want to go to any lengths? Scott, sure I am. And then uh, my first inventory, I was a little dishonest because I wasn't too sure. You didn't trust people like that where I came from. I, tr I trusted my co-conspirators only to the degree in which they committed felonies with me. If we were on that same playing field, man, I trusted you. As far as that went, you know, and I got to see the lack of value in that, and it took some time. It took a long time. I'll talk about it later, you know, in, in, in another very difficult process of this work where I found out people I trusted, but <laughs> I'll get to it later. But these are the kinds of things that eventually I have to get down to. I have to get down to the causes and effects. I have to get down to the root cause. Otherwise, I'm just documenting bad behavior. I'm sitting on that pile of dung and I'm swatting flies instead of getting off the pile of dung. Give it away. Put it in the truck. God will cart it away. He's more than happy to take it and, and a lot more capable than I am. I can't do anything with it but be affected by it, which means you're affected by it. And this is how I show up to you. Character defect is how I do business, though I usually don't think so. So, then I write a fear inventory. Like I said, I thought that it was fear that drove selfishness. Then I get to find out that it's really, um, it's really selfishness that is the engine for all of the fear and dishonesty and the anger or the resentment, you know, the self-seeking in my life. 
But what I did with my fears was it said, you know, I did, it, it, I've often heard it said like, well, there's no instructions on fear in the big book. And I'm like, I, I, you know, they didn't, it doesn't show columns like it does in the fourth step, but there certainly are instructions in the big book and it's on page 68. And it says, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. All right. So I have an, a list of fears. Even though we have had no resentment in connection with them. So some of these fears, I'm not always going to draw. The, the resentment inventory is not the one concrete, one and done, you know, ironclad way to pull out um, fear, sex, and even harms list. There's a lot of stuff come out of my inventory that I, you know, my harms list rather and things like that that had nothing to do with fear, had nothing to do with, didn't show up on my resentment, but I certainly harmed people. Like I said, I was an armed robber, so like I didn't resent the people I robbed. I was kind of fond of them that they had the money. <laughs> no, I don't mean to make light of that. But I had no uh, resentment attached to that, and I was never afraid of uh, being arrested for the stuff. So, anyway, though we had no resentment in connection with them, we asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? So, what do I have here? I have instructions on my fears. I reviewed them thoroughly, which means I considered them and I listed them. I put them on paper. So, what is the fear? What I do is it's a four-sentence four inventory. The first sentence is the fear. And the example I was given was, I'm afraid of elevators. We asked ourselves why we had them. Well, I'm afraid the cable will snap and I'll die. Wasn't it because self-reliance had failed us? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So where's the self-reliance in the fear? I selfishly decided to preserve my own life by not getting on the elevator. All right? Or if it made me cocky and I get on the elevator and I torture you while I'm there, it gets even worse. You, know, you get what I'm saying? So fear is going to keep me out of the game or it's going to put me in there like a tornado roaring through your life. Either way, it's not going to work out for me. And there's a lot of paradox in Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is like hitting the lottery. It, it is. But you got to play to win. Now, unlike the lottery, here's the paradox here. If everybody plays, everybody wins. It's guaranteed. We were talking about hitting the lottery today on the way over here. But uh, I'll tell you, I've seen an alcoholic friend of mine hit the lottery, man, for $2 million. And within a year, he was broke. Never picked up a drink. Did a gambling, all right? So I don't know what self looks like in your life, but you know, and the people closest to you know, believe me. So there's my fear inventory, the first three sentences, where self-reliance has failed me. And then the following is not a, it's not a question, it's a statement. And it's, it's a statement of, of absolute truth. Peter had talked about it earlier. 
what is the reason for my fear? It is the same every time, no matter what. See, but what I want, what the mind and the ego wants, is this wonderful answer to the fear. What, like, okay, I do this, and now I'm no longer afraid, kind of an answer. But what I get isn't always satisfactory to the mind, but it's the truth regardless. It's absolute. And the reason for my fear is that I'm not relying on God to care for and protect me. And that answer, that statement, is at the end of every fear inventory I ever wrote. And it's almost like, well, what do you mean? That's it? There's no, like, corrective measure answer type thing there? No. No, the answer to my fear, the reason for my fear, is that I'm not relying on God to care for and protect me every time. And that's how I write fear inventory. And then we have sex. (laughs) It's, you know, I love where it says a lot of us need an overhaul here. So it says in the middle of the page 69 where... It says we reviewed our own sex conduct over the past year. So my sex inventory is a series of questions. It's a series of considerations um, in my relationships. Where had I been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? It's not a checklist. I have to do some actual consideration here, and I take a real hard look at it. Where have I really been using you to feel good about me? You know? Where had I been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had I hurt? I may have hurt lots of people, not just you. Maybe I hurt your family members. Maybe I hurt other people that care about you when they saw me treat you with anything other than dignity, love, and respect. So I can pull some stuff out of that. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? And it's real easy to say, no, I just did a, you know, listen to a fifth step from a guy I sponsor out in San Diego. And, uh, you know, we get done this thing and I'm like, really, no, no unjustifiable arousal of jealousy, suspicion or bitterness. He's like, no, we really, we were just kind of using each other. I said, oh, okay. So when she's jealous or suspicious or bitter about the way you unjustifiably used her, that didn't create unjustifiable jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? But it, it, the only reason I was able to point that out to him is because it was, it was pointed out to me by a man who had done this work, by a man who does this work, by someone who actually looked at women in a very different way than I did when I showed up to him. I wanted what he had. And then the more I started to find out what it was he had, the more I realized, wow, you know what? I really wasn't so interested in what you have as I thought I was because of some of the things that were in my castles, my belief systems about men and women, about how men are here and we're this and we're tough and all that, and women are just kind of here, although I would never have the guts to say something like that in public. My actions showed it in color, capital letters. And now I wasn't so proud of the way I'd acted in relationships and treated women all my life. But the truth about that comes with the love of God behind it. So 
That's what I showed up with. God's willing to help me with that. And much more. How free do we want to get here? You know? When my son told me about that young woman who abandoned Alcoholics Anonymous, and you know what? Could have been other reasons. I abandoned AA while I was in AA. So when I hear somebody left and goes in, in, in ODs or drinks himself, it doesn't shock me. It saddens me because, like I said, if everybody plays, everybody wins in here. And I mean wins big, high victory. I'm not kidding. But when I heard the type of treatment that she received in Alcoholics Anonymous, oh, I'll give you a ride to a meeting. And then, you know, relentless cracking on her, hitting on on her constantly it drove her out of the room now she's dead and she said that i couldn't stand being hit on anymore i despise that sort of thing but i'll tell you what in 1997 women weren't safe around me in alcoholics anonymous absolutely not my own girlfriend wasn't safe around me because i would man i was anywhere anybody that winked at me and I'd wink at you first to see if you'd wink back. You know what I'm saying? And I was a predator in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't live that way today. And I despise it when I see it. And, uh, you know, sometimes we got to learn uh, the, the hard way. Just how damaging our behavior can be, especially in sex matters. But when I sat down with my sponsor, he didn't judge me in step five. You know? It talks about making a sex ideal here. In this way, we try to shape our sane, sound ideal for our future sex life. Our future relationship. And it's not about the perfect girl. All right, I'm going to write out the perfect woman. You know, I, that I just assumed before I even got into the work. You know, when I heard this sex ideal thing, I'm like, well, okay, well, I, I know what kind of woman I want. But what it is is what kind of a man do I want to be? How do I want to show up to you? We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. Have I done that stuff? Or do I think that's optional? We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, despised or loathed. Um, sex is a very powerful thing. And we try to treat it in a very casual way a lot of the time. And there's, there is no casual way for two people to have sexual experience with each other. It just, and it wasn't meant to be that way. You know, it's very powerful. Wars have been fought over sex. And it was meant to be that way. You know, it's like there's a very powerful attraction in sex. And it was meant to be because God wants us to like each other. You know what I'm saying? And what, how many other moments in your life can you be 100% in the moment like you are when you're having a wonderful sexual experience with another human being? 100% in the moment. Not thinking about work tomorrow. Not thinking about, you know what I'm saying? You're there. And we want to treat that casually. We think not. That's a we think not moment. I'm going to get to that we think not later, boy, I'll tell you. But these are all things I had to look at, and I never looked at before in my life. Never even considered that I needed an overhauling there, nor was I interested in one. I thought it would take away uh, a part of me that I, I came to hold as uh, being a man, like it was going to make me soft and squishy. And I'll tell you what, if, if I seem soft and squishy, so be it. 
but, you know, I had to have a real ass beating in that area of my life before I was willing to, uh, to change anything. And along came the, f- the step five, like my first, and uh, there was only one fifth step I ever did with my sponsor face-to-face. It's because I was out in Colorado um, doing something out there, and I had an opportunity to do it, but it was always over the phone. Um, but, you know, I had to reveal a lot to, my, uh, to him over the years, and I never, ever once felt judged harshly, you know. Yeah, he had to make some judgments on how, how you know, I, I should deal with this inventory if there was anything other than just asking God to remove it, things that we had to discuss, you know, uh, such as corrective type measures, things that I can do, you know, the next time these things crop up. But, um, and we need to remember that, that this, the fifth step, when we share this stuff with the next alcoholic or someone sharing this stuff with us, it needs to be done in confidence. It it needs to be a sacred experience. What I do with my sponsor is we pray first, just like when I wrote out on the page. You notice there's no amen at the end of the third step prayer. And the reason for that is that this whole body of work needs to be done prayerfully. There's an amen at the end of step seven. But this body of work is to be done prayerfully. That means when we take the fifth step, either with our sponsors or someone's taking it with us, it is still sacred on both ends. And it's something that needs to be treated as such. You know, I had a a guy call me doing some inventory from Florida. And uh, he's like, man, I think I may have caused some harm you know, a, a guy had disclosed something to him in a fifth step that he openly talked about at a meeting. Just at a table with a couple other guys, not like from the floor, but, you know, he he disclosed some stuff about another guy's fifth step. And I'm like, man, you, you got some amends to make. Not only to the man whose information you talked about, but to the two guys that you gossiped to. You owe them an amends as well. You know, and, and he was like, oh, wow, really? And Yeah, really. And, like, I didn't come up with that myself. You know, I, I came to that conclusion because of some of the tough uh, tasks I was given as a result of my inventories. You know, but it's a confession. It's a confession. We can't balance our own books here in Alcoholics Anonymous. It just doesn't work that way. And a simple, you know, God help me with this stuff was never enough for me to do it. I had to really get down to causes and conditions. And when I have a sponsor who's actually got experience with this stuff, like I said, if I don't have a sponsor who's willing to go to those places I don't want to go and the places I need to go in order to experience healing, if I don't have a sponsor that's going to take me, I'm not going. I really, I'm really very fortunate when I met my sponsor. Because he'll take me there, and he'll take me there all day long. And if we don't have that person in our lives, go find that person. Whether you're a man or a woman, we need to have that type of relationship in here. Transparent. And like I said, you know, don't look for that perfect inventory. You're going to be as honest as you're capable of being if you allow yourself to be. And uh, I think we're going to eat lunch now.
Thank you. Okay, so I just want to say all the pizza and 